Welcome to the Behind the Mission podcast. On this special bonus episode, we want to recognize and commemorate the events of September 11, 2001, the day that the world changed for our nation, our communities, and for the lives of millions. On this 20th anniversary, we wanted to share the reflections of those who experienced the attack, how it impacted them, and how it changed their lives forever. At PsychArmor, we recognize the significant sacrifice of those who answered the call to service on that day and on every day since, and honor them for their bravery, selflessness, and sacrifice. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. The pictures of airplanes flying into buildings, fires burning, huge, huge structures collapsing, have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat, but they have failed. Our country is strong. Today, we're featuring a conversation with two individuals who experienced that terrible day in very different ways. PsychArmor CEO Tina Atherall and Freedom Learning Group CEO Elizabeth O'Brien. They're sharing their stories with us today so that, as always, we may never forget. So, 20 years ago, on a Tuesday morning, planes were flown into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and one crashed into Pennsylvania Field. That day, life changed for everyone, especially those of us affiliated with the military or first responders, but really for everyone in the country. For both of you, I'm interested in hearing about your experience of that day. So I was living on Long Island. It's where I was born and raised. I was in Long Beach, New York, and my brother's uh, a longtime member uh, of the FDNY. Back then, he was on the 102 in Brooklyn. And I remember being glued to the news and thinking, oh, this can't be real, and called him shortly after the first plane flew into the tower. And he was getting ready to go and get on the truck. And he just said, listen, it's, it's going to be a terrible day. Tell mom and dad I love them. And I could hear him hop on the truck. He said, I love you again. And you could hear him pull out. And they raced over the Brooklyn Bridge. And folks that don't know, it's actually really close to the Trade Center. And they were there in minutes. And so it was a surreal experience watching everything unfold on TV, knowing that we had other friends that, in theory, should be at work in the tower, watching all of the first responders rush in there. And really, it's like being in the military where it doesn't mean you make a right or wrong decision. You happen to go left when everybody goes right. And certainly on that day, we didn't hear from him for 14 or 15 hours, didn't know what was going on and just watching the chaos. And so eventually we 
did hear from him. And his truck was the only truck in his battalion that survived. And it was solely because they really went left instead of right when they got on scene. And watching all of that unfold has stayed with me for years and years and trying to wrap your head around. Here we are 20 years later. It has been a a never-ending process, certainly. I think that was a common experience for a lot of people, that certainty of it's going to be a terrible day. Not, I have a bad feeling about this. There was a certainty around this is not going to end well for many people. Absolutely. And I don't even know how many people during it had the the opportunity to truly process it. I think folks who are accustomed to rushing into challenging situations, dangerous situations can really differentiate. But for the majority of us and Americans watching it unfold, I don't even remember being able to fully wrap my head around it. And I think, again, there's that idea of everyone was shocked that day, and it was the beginning of a number of different terrible days. Tina, where were you on 9-11? What were you doing, and how did you experience that? This is why we do podcasts, because I love to hear the stories that you often don't get to get when you're sitting around doing your work and rushing from one meeting to another. So thank you for that, Liz, because I also think about what I now know about Long Island or Long Beach. It's a community of police and firemen. It's a community of service and they could actually see Manhattan from certain points that day. So it's just incredible story. So I'm glad I got to hear that. And my thread that's so fun that connects with this and fun isn't the right word, but it is because this is just where your life like manifests in the way that it's supposed to. I was active duty Marine Corps spouse and recruiting duty in Detroit, Michigan, two small little toddlers at home and a newborn. So I was like primed with emotions or a little baby in my arms. And I remember when the planes hit the first tower, I was just about ready to drop off my oldest for kindergarten. And their dad was already at the recruiting office. My stepfather's brother-in-law worked in the trade centers. He worked for Cantor Fitzgerald. And just that August, he had taken that job. So we all knew that Uncle Ed worked in the trade centers, but we had, we weren't New Yorkers. We had no idea what the North Tower or the South Tower meant. We're like, was that the right, the left? Which, which one got hit at that time? It was one plane. For me, there was multiple emotions all at one time. For one, having been an active duty spouse for 10 years, we had already seen multiple deployments and we were on recruiting duty thinking we were getting a break from deployments. It's probably our fourth deployment within a 10-year time span. And again, little babies, we just wanted to be home. So we thought we were getting a little bit of a break. And I remember thinking to myself, first and foremost, "Uh uh-oh, our lives are going to change. Like, this is it. This is what we've always waited for. Not just little engagements here and there and deployments, Somalia, whatever it might be. This is going to be big. And then at the same time, that real raw mama feel, like, I just dropped my daughter off at school. I can't get a hold of my husband. I have a brand new baby in my arms and oh my God, what is happening in this world? And oh, by the way, which tower is North Tower and South Tower and where in the heck is Uncle Ed, right? And thinking about his small children that were at home. It was just a collide of all of that. I share this story because one, knowing Liz now and knowing her as a military spouse, but then also understanding New Yorkers because we ended up in New York at one time and that will be a story we can get to in a second. There was this moment when the second tower fell and I was again holding my brand new baby. So I'm sure I was just primed with every possible emotion, understanding the severity for my own family, but having this instant flood of, oh my God, the fireman's wife. And it just took me to the floor. Like all I could think of was understanding what it meant to be that military spouse with others having received horrible news because I we had been there. I, I actually worked in trauma here in California at one point and we had a trauma call one day and it was a training accident and three Marines were killed. So I've, I had been on that side often already. It was like that news had not been new. And I remember just thinking, 
that fireman's wife's going to get some really bad news today. Not at all thinking about the other the civilians that were, it was just, mm -hmm. all I could think about was the service, those that were aligned with service. Now, consequently, that in 2008, maybe, I met that fireman's wife. She's now my best friend. And the minute that I met her, I knew, I was like, oh my God, I was, I was thinking about you. And so when I hear her story about the minute that tower dropped and knowing that her husband who worked in the 10 truck was in that building and just the process of, Denise, I felt you in that moment. That's stuff I can't ever let go of. It's just like your worlds are connected in such incredible ways, even through tragedy. And I think that's something that's very critical about 9-11. Everybody talks about remembering where they were when JFK died in the older generation. Same thing with Pearl Harbor. But obviously, Liz, you were the family member of first responders and you were there. It was impacting you closely. Tina, you were in Detroit, right? You were several states away, had no connection to New York whatsoever. And as I mentioned before we started talking, I was in Germany uh, and I was active duty military, but it impacted me in a very different and real way, just the same way that it impacted each of you. And I think that 9-11 was really a watershed moment in each of our lives, particularly, but also our country as a whole is, again, I'd mentioned for me, it was in two or three in the afternoon and we were listening to it on the radio. We actually didn't hear about it. We heard rumors about it. The planes had already flown into the World Trade Center. And I was actually listening to the radio when the plane flew in the Pentagon. And I turned to my colleague there, Tammy Stewart, and, and I said, we're at war. That same certainty, Liz, yeah. that your brother had, this is going to be a terrible day. Tina, that same certainty that, oh my God, people are going to lose. I was as certain as that's it, we're at war. There's no, There was no question about accidents at that point. There was no, in my mind, and, and it turned out to be true, that we were then a nation at war and things changed. You know, Dwayne, I want to add to that real quick because one of the, I always think about those moments when you're really, like you could look back and go, oh my God, I knew something. You just had this feeling around something. We had gone to Arlington. National Cemetery earlier that summer. And I, I think Joe must have been on some recruiting training down there in the DC area. And we went to the grave of the Kennedys and, and the internal flame. And at that time, there was this funeral that was coming through. There was no Section 60. And I, I remember saying to my husband at the time, I said, I am so glad we don't know anyone here. And it was just in a short time later that we started to know an entire section. Now I can't walk through without being like, oh, you know. So it definitely, those are the, just that transition of life, right? Like at one time, things were so much less, maybe even heavy or innocent. And now we just, it just takes that, it's sacrificed to a whole nother level, whole nother depth of understanding. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about, Tina, when you said you, you love doing these podcasts, so we because we so rarely are able to engage and have conversations and share. And certainly on, on my part, that's been very intentional around 9-11 because my brother rarely talks about it. Where he does, it's probably at work. But the way he manages and handles that day is very different than a lot of people. And because he is so reserved and quiet about it, I've worked hard. To, that's how I choose to honor that day and not traditionally talk about it forward facing. But as we've come up on 20 years, I've really started to believe that it's important that history is shared. 
like I noticed in my kids' schools here down in Fairfax County, they don't talk much about 9-11 and, and the Pentagon was hit. And so if we don't tell stories and honor the heroes, which unfortunately heroes only exist in times of tragedy and really challenging times, then they slowly get lost to history. And so being a, a little bit more forward facing about that day. But what I saw that day, I was coaching basketball at, at Hofstra University and my parents happened to live in Hempstead and I ran over to find my dad and tell him what was going on and then ran back in to tell him the Pentagon had been hit. And he told me, no way, there's, that just doesn't happen in America because it was so foreign. But when I was coaching at Hofstra, what I took from that day, and it wasn't just on Long Island, is that people want to be part of the response. They wanted to be part of the help and the solution. And how do we come together? Because it wasn't just New York City that was hit. It was Washington, D.C. It was the planes that went down in, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, right? These planes had people from all over the country and all over the world. And a devastating day also served as a unifying moment that we probably haven't seen since then. But all I took from that day is right away, our, our basketball players wanted to know how they could help, what they could do, who they could cook for, etc. And so it's a, a day I haven't seen in response since then, really, around that sense of unity. And I think that's something very critical, and both of you had mentioned a sense of loss, a loss of innocence, obviously a loss of life. But really, what has changed in each of your lives individually, right? What changed for you after 9-11? How were things different compared to before? How did it inspire you in the efforts in, in, in the work that you perhaps did? Oh boy, we talk about this a lot in terms of what do you do in that in a moment of stress. I, I think even with this recent pandemic, this has come up. What did we all do in that that moment of the world starting to shut down? I definitely go into action, right? That is the way that I cope with everything going on around me. There's if there's a problem at hand, let, let's find a solution. As it relates to 9-11, though, it was a little bit different for me in the beginning. Because in the beginning, there was a loss in my own personal family. And my family had a very hard road in supporting my aunt, her children. And the, I want to note that just the process for my parents was very different than how I feel. It was, it still to this day holds a very tragic place for them. It's not spoke about, I'd even say for Liz. If I look at the way, the different ways that we know that 9-11 families have responded, like my friend Denise, it's completely different. So during the days after 9-11, it, it was very, very different. There was, yes, a sense of that patriotism and coming together, but there's a lot of uncertainty because where were we going next? Our family was actually looking at potentially leaving service. We're at that 10-year mark. A lot of military families do that. Cost analysis, ROI, should we stay, should we go? We were close to home. And I remember my husband saying, the Marine Corps has invested 10 years in me. It will take 10 years to build this. This is when our country needs us the most. And so we hauled up the, the kids, the dogs, the cats, and headed down to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Little did I know I was pregnant with my fourth child. And right before we had him, his dad deployed at one of the largest deployments for that base at that time. And I can say that to what Liz says, that was the point, I think, for military families. We knew now it was our turn, right? Our communities, the Pentagon, Pennsylvania, everybody, America had been hit. It was now our time to respond. And there was no question. It was like, okay, off we go. And the families rallied around that. And so I remember during those first few months of like massive deployments out of Camp Lejeune, all of us unifying and just saying, we will do whatever we have to do to support one another and to be there 
when others start returning home. We kind of already knew what the West Coast, at least for the Marine Corps and specifically, had been dealing with. And it was really tough. And it was extremely tough. And we knew we were going to have our, our hands full at Camp Lejeune. And from there, that's where you just go ahead and start a nonprofit. That's what you do when things get hard. So service began, and that's really been my life. I think reflecting 20 years forward, there's always that duality of emotions. Because I'm sending my young baby, that baby I just spoke about that was just born at the time of massive deployments and that little guy, man, he only knows goodbyes and hellos. That's what mm-hmm. that kid knows. The, my third child, he was the first graduating class, the graduating class of the babies of 2001. Like they don't know a life other than the massive headlines. So ironically, my son, this baby is going off to uh, senior year. His dad's home from overseas right now. He was consumed again by the headlines of what's happening overseas. So our families have not known anything other than massive service in all of the right ways. And so what I will say on how all of it in a very snippet is that I learned what service was beyond my own family and the identity of, say, the Marine Corps. I understood service as communities. And we later had the distinct pleasure of living in New York, which is why now I like have this smile. And I met people, and I say this to my children all the time, most people will not have the opportunity to live the depth of a life that you have lived. You will not ever, people to have known John Vigiano and the Vigiano family and Harry Bridgewood and the firemen and the policemen of of New York City and the military members like the Kellys and all of them that have shared, we were just talking about John Phelps and his son Chance last night. Those are the conversations that happen at our kitchen table. Yeah, we we talk about the sports people. We love them too. We love our basketball players, Liz. It has been their entire lives of service. And because of that service, we have met the most amazing individuals that yes, that the common thread is some story of significant loss or tragedy, but there is always something amazing that comes out on the other side. And I really appreciate that perspective. And I think I had a very similar experience is before 9-11, the sacrifice was theoretical. Like your husband, yes, I'd had some deployments, Bosnia and some things like that, but it was theoretical. But then after 9-11, it became practical, it became actual, right? It was, there was a need for the sacrifice. We all knew that the military was an inherently dangerous occupation. But then Liz, you'd been in the first responder family culture, but you hadn't yet joined military culture necessarily. I wonder what that was like for you engaging in in military culture, understanding that we're a nation at war. It wasn't a, a mindset shift like it was for Tina and me. You knew what you were getting into, more or less, I think. <laughs> Does anybody ever know what they're getting into? <laughs> Generally. Absolutely no clue. And thinking back about what Tina said and what her kids grew up with and the firefighters, it's been amazing to me over the course of two decades one, to watch so many military families are, are almost going on their, their third generation of service now within that 20 years. And then watching our service members transition out and come back to work in the firehouses of New York and then watching the second generations of first responders' children raise their hand and, and also serve in that capacity. And many of these kids also lost family members that day. And I think there's just a thread for certain people around that call to service where they keep raising their hand and saying, I want to serve. How can I serve? What can I do? In terms of me moving into becoming part of a military family, I, I don't know that you ever 
Well, if you're me, you never actually stop and think, what does this mean? Where are we going? Uh, I just knew I was getting on a plane and, and moving to Hawaii and that there was a deployment coming. And if I didn't move now, then we were never going to know if this was what was right. And But was keenly aware after I left Hofstra, I went to West Point to coach basketball and talk about having to rethink how you coach and how you recruit student athletes, because I was now put in a situation to recruit student athletes that were going to have to go to war. And so that's completely different than anything I had ever experienced in my coaching career. Uh, And watching these young women say yes after 9-11, knowing that they were going to have to go off to war and that there was no end in sight was probably one of the most brave and inspiring things I've ever watched young kids do at the age of 17. And so from there, I think that's really where I found my way into this life. But just watching these young women rise over and over to various challenges most of us couldn't fathom facing around deaths of spouses and multiple deployments, and then eventually marrying into the military and watching my own kids say goodbye over and over again as their dad went off to to serve. And all you can do is say, what can I do? How can I help? I don't sit still very well, though I have not yet started a nonprofit. But I come back to even what I, I do now at Freedom Learning Group. We are a company that was founded by a Marine Corps family because they wanted to solve spouse employment. What can I do? How can I help? And so for us every day, I feel like we're building community and bringing people together from all over the world to make sure that they have a place to thrive. And that's really been the journey of taking opportunities, raising your hand. What can I do? How can I help? And then I always feel like helpers find great helpers. And certainly that's how my path crossed with Tina and all the great people that have layered in between there. So 20 years where we could have just folded and sat back. Instead, people decided to rise over and over again. I think that is definitely a critical theme of sacrifice and loss can lead to despair, but it can also lead to service. I know that one thing changed for me in the Army, in in all of the services have these core values, but here in the Army, of course, we have the acronym leadership, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. And one of our famous questions is, what is the most important, right? You asked that in promotion boards. And I think for me, before 9-11, a lot of it was integrity. It was like, without integrity, you can't have all the other ones. And as I started considering and hearing the stories about 9-11, John Vigiano, Rick Rescorla, a a hero of Aya Drang in Vietnam and then saving lives in the World Trade Center, for me, personal courage became and more significant. Liz, as you were talking about, anybody who who came in as a freshman at West Point or the Air Force Academy or the Naval Academy after 9-11 knew what they were, you know, at least conceptually knew that they were going to be doing a dangerous job. And it took a lot of courage the spring or the fall of, of 2001, a, a lot more perhaps than it might have taken that fall of 2000 because that those new recruits didn't weren't aware of that. So I think that concept of courage and that courage to step forward and do things like start a nonprofit or to get involved in helping spouses. I think that courage is really one thing that is an important component, I think, to that sacrifice. So now we're 20 years later. I was just thinking about this. It doesn't seem that long ago, but I was in my late 20s at the time. I'd only been in the Army for about nine years, hadn't even hit the halfway point in my career. Like you, Tina, my son was a newborn. He was born a month before 9-11, and he just turned 20 last month. He could enlist, and and this was one of the things that cross-generational conflict, as you were talking about, Liz. What do you think the legacy of that service that was started on 9-11, what is that legacy moving forward? 
I think it's important for folks to recognize that each individual's legacy is different than somebody else's. I think one of the things we get caught up in, especially the military community, is that service occurs when you put on a uniform. In actuality, services occur every day across the country, whether it's somebody volunteering at a NICU to hold a a newborn baby or somebody making baby blankets or going to feed folks, etc. And so when we think about legacy of service, I think it's important to recognize for everybody that there's a way to serve and it doesn't matter if it's small or it's big, but really embracing service in general as a part of our daily lives is what I I think the legacy is starting with 9-11, right? Catapulting a generation of service of people that want to help, that recognize the need for help and moving forward from there and that each person's legacy is what we make of it, but being conscious of the opportunity to serve in whatever capacity that we're capable of doing on a daily basis. And and I think there's that idea of, and Tina, as you'd mentioned, your kids know nothing but hellos and goodbyes over these next 20 years, but we know that anything we repeatedly do, we get very good at. They they also know sacrifice and service, right? So there's that, that, that sense of service. I'm even thinking as you were talking about, Liz, my daughter who experienced all of my deployments is going to be a teacher. That's sacrificial, right? She's studying to be a teacher and my son wants to do biochemistry. Lord love, especially right now something that's a very critical aspect in public health and stuff like that. And so our families, that individual legacy of service, they're not planning on joining the military, but they're looking to serve their community in different ways. Yeah. I'm going to add to that because you took mine. It would have been community. The legacy is community. The legacy is community and also the history of that community. When you we talk about our children, I think it's our responsibility. They're our legacy. And it's also our responsibility to create that sense of community within our own families and that they're going to continue to serve. I think about when my boys step out on the lacrosse field, there's a t-shirt that they wear underneath their uniforms. It's Team Kelly. And every now and then they switch it up and they have they have one of the Jeff Olson shirts. So it just depends on the day and the sweat, I'm sure, that's built up. But there's a core to that that I hope. And again, Dwayne, thanks to you, I get to be in the Bush Center every month right now. And you know that they're talking to us about values all the time. And they are, we're constantly reevaluating our values. And so I hope that as we approach the 20th weekend, in particular right now, because there's so much intensity around what's going on in Afghanistan. I do hope that we can find a moment where we share the legacy of community, of history, of individuals who believed in a shared pain, really, shared cause, shared community. And they believed 100% in what they were doing in that moment, which was very real. Even the the individuals who, who went to work that day, the individuals who stayed on piles for months after, the people who brought food. We had a shared sense of community. We need to bring that back again. I do feel very, very lucky. I don't. I have to be very careful about drumming the beat of military community, military families. We're the best ever, but we do have a strong sense of community that through doesn't matter which generation of military families it serves. So Liz says she doesn't start a nonprofit, but she has definitely catapulted or supported so many individuals in their efforts to carry on legacy. Run Blue to Remember. I don't even want to list it because I know where she spends her time. And so I think that there is something that's lacking outside of our community of being the military affiliated that has that true core. And I worry about that for my children. And I have to remind them over and over again of where they came from and asking them to please speak the names or speak the story, speak the history with their friends, because that has been a hard thing for 
them during their transitions to roll up into communities where there's a lot more privilege, there's a lot more wealth, and there's a lot less sacrifice. There have been often times where they've reflected back and they're like, how come we didn't have all of that? And if I didn't bring that up, I would be remiss to say that there is something that in order to have those stories of those great people and that, those experiences, sometimes you're not going to have the beach house that your family goes to every year. We don't have that. We never would have stayed anywhere long enough that we would have had that beach house. You know what I'm saying? I have to, sometimes it's hard in this world to remind them that their experiences were real. They were worth it. They were deep and sometimes they were hard, but that's going to build a, a better individual. It's going to build a better country. It's going to build unity and community moving forward. So Tina, I, th I think you have hit on a thread and we're all keenly aware, certainly. I don't want to not say what's in the, in the room right now of Afghanistan and the drawdown uh, and all of the things that are happening right now. And as we're leading up to 20 years of 9-11. But the reason our community is close is because we have gone through those challenges, the sense of loss, but ultimately having sense of purpose as well. And how do we get that out across America? You know, as, I, as I've watched events unfold in the last few weeks, watching folks co-opt narratives to push forward their own political points of view and stances is heartbreaking to me. What I'd love for to see people do instead is say, who can I go have a conversation with today? What service member, what gold star family, what firefighter, what last responder, what person in my community needs to have a conversation today, right? Like that time and energy you put into a Facebook post that nobody's going to see in the administration. The only people that are going to see it are the members of the military, of the fire, of the EMTs, the first responders, et cetera. And so love a world where America can also share in that sense of purpose that has been prevalent throughout our military community and first responder community for decades. No, I, I very much appreciate that. Of course, as a mental health professional, the, the concept of post-traumatic growth, right? What happens in strength and resilience after extreme hardship? It's true for individuals, and I believe it can be true for communities, both geographic communities, but also communities of practice and communities of interest like military. But also, I think that when we have hardship, coming out of that hardship stronger, more united is definitely something that's very necessary and even possible. So I want to thank you both for sharing your time today to be able to talk about 9-11, to be talk about what happened 20 years ago. Any final thoughts? My, my final thoughts would be for Americans around the globe, certainly to take time as we approach 9-11 and recognize, uh, you know, Kevin Schmiegel highlighted this for me, between 9-11 and Veterans Day, there's 60 great days to make sure that you're doing singular acts of service within your community. But take the time to think, take the time to recognize, take the time always to remember. So I promised that I, I was, was going to talk about John some today, John Vigiano. So I'm just going to wrap up in something that he would remind everyone whenever he was speaking about 9-11. And this is a fireman, uh, retired fireman who lost both his sons, he had absolute continued service beyond 9-11. And he would remind people that there was more good that came from that than bad. And so I think as we come upon this 20th, it's also really important for us to pause. Oftentimes we just blow through things, but just given so much of what we've all gone through collectively over the last two years almost, to take time to pause and just to remember all of the abundance that is there and really reflect on the things that we're grateful for. 
Absolutely. And and I'm sure that each of us in our own way and all of us collectively will be able to continue to do that. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Dwayne. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us in commemorating the tragic events of September 11, 2001. As Tina and Elizabeth shared, this day was a universally life-changing experience. It made an impact in people's lives on that day and led to a series of events that will continue to make an impact throughout the rest of our lives. For those of us who experienced it, that day will be forever a dividing line, the way things were before 9-11 and the way things were after. At PsychArmor, We are grateful for the sacrifices that were made on that day and on every day since. In closing, we leave you with the words of President George W. Bush as closing remarks from his address to the nation on September 11, 2001. Tonight I ask for your prayers for all those who grieve for the children whose worlds have been shattered, for all whose sense of safety and security has been threatened. And I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us, spoken through the ages in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. This is a day when all Americans from every walk of life unite in our resolve for justice and peace. America has stood down enemies before, and we will do so this time. None of us will ever forget this day, yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. Thank you, good night, and God bless America.